nice to see you this morning. Let's just pray for a moment. We don't want to rush out of the presence of God this morning. We enter his gates with thanksgiving and praise and our hearts cry out for a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Father, this morning, may we step into greater depths of the river of your Spirit. Not just ankle deep or knee deep, but to swim in that river, to be immersed in it, to receive those times of refreshing from your throne. Father, you know our hearts this morning. Fill our hearts this morning with your spirit. Come Holy Spirit, fall afresh on us this morning. That we might have an enlarged understanding and vision of how great and amazing you are. You are our God who created all things, you sustain all things. You have a plan and a destiny for our lives. And Father God, we desire to enter into that. We desire to see your Holy Spirit work in great power to set the captives free, to bring those who yet don't have a relationship with you into the light and into your kingdom. Begin with us today, Heavenly Father. Touch our hearts today. Refresh us today. Enliven us again with the power and the grace and the truth of your Holy Spirit. In the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, for those who may be new, we started a few weeks ago a series on revealing hidden things. And I mentioned that in our lives, there can be hidden things that stop us from reaching our full potential in God. They inhibit our growth. But when we bring those things out into the light, in a very miraculous way, God stimulates our growth. So we looked at two things over the last two weeks that are very individual, personal things. Sin, hidden sin in our heart. That if we bring that sin out, God forgives us. He gives us mercy he cleanses us from all unrighteousness that we can walk with a clean conscience before him. And then last week, I talked about hidden gifts, that every one of us is completely unique and we have amazing gifts from God. And one day God's going to say, what did you do with that gift? We looked at the parable of the talents. If we hide those gifts in the ground, then there will be no reward. Yes, we will be saved. Yes, we will spend eternity with God, which is just amazing in its own right. But God has a reward he wants to give as well. Well, this morning we're going to move on to an enlargement of just the individual Christian. And I want to talk about the church and hidden dangers in the church as a whole. As God's people gather here and beyond, all around the world, there are hidden dangers. The enemy is seeking to destroy the church. And I'd like to read from Jude uh, verses 3 to 4 and 11 to 13. Now, Jude is an end time book. It was written for the last days, which is from the first coming of Jesus to the last coming of Jesus. And if you can imagine those 2,000 years, we're not actually in the last days, we're in the last days of the last days. 
So we're sort of getting right to the very end uh, when we believe Christ is coming back. And someone said to me once, well, you know, when is Jesus coming back? And I said, look, I only know two things. Jesus is coming back and it's closer today than it was yesterday. And so we need to live as if Jesus was coming back this morning, live our lives with a passion for Christ and a love for God and for those who are lost, that we might reach the full potential that God has for us. Jude 3 to 4 and 11 to 13. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. And that's a prophetic phrase. In the Old Testament, the prophets were always standing up saying, Woe to you. So when Jude adopts this prophetic word, it's a, it's a word that says, Wake up, listen to this. This is important. Woe to them. For they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now it's amazing, in the book of Jude there, I believe, about 25 different images that Jude uses to talk about those who've crept into the church, wherever God's people are, and seek to corrupt the church. And it's very interesting, the, the book of Acts is often called the Acts of the Apostles. Well, the book of Jude is often called the Acts of the Apostates. And an apostate is somebody who has come into the church, who gives the appearance like a cloud, but doesn't have any water, like a, a tree that doesn't have any fruit. And so they come into the church unnoticed. They creep in and they seek to corrupt the church. They distort the truth and rob the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. The enemy is very subtle and he hides in the church as well. Paul says this in Acts 20, 29 to 30. This is an experience over 2,000 years. I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, even from among yourselves. And listen to this, even from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things 
twisting the truth to seduce disciples into following them instead of Jesus. Apostates might be a new word for you. Someone who's crept into the church for one of the greatest dangers for the church in our time in these last days that's been going on for 2,000 years is not necessarily from outside the church, but from inside the church. From those in the church who would seem to be following Christ, but distort the gospel, twist the truth, promote all sorts of things that the scripture says are ungodly. And Jude gives us a general description. He says they are hidden reefs, a reef underneath the the water, and the, the captain of the ship doesn't see that reef. And he's trying to guide his ship into the harbour or wherever he's going, and he hits the reef and the ship sinks. It's a hidden reef. I love the passion translation of this. These false teachers are like dangerous hidden reefs lying in wait to shipwreck the immature. The church needs to grow up into the fullness of what God has for us that we might see the hidden reef and avoid it. And what's the key motivation? The key motivation is found in verse 12 of our reading today. They are shepherds feeding themselves. Which is really amazing because we think about the words that Jesus said to Peter, go and feed my sheep. Don't go and feed yourself, go and feed my sheep. And this morning we're going to look at two aspects. Number one is recognising the faults leaders and teachers in the church. And in every church I've ever pastored, I always say at the very beginning, and I affirm it again this morning, do not believe anything I say from up here unless you are firmly convinced that the word of God teaches it. Go home. Check it out for yourself. Don't believe me unless you believe that the scriptures actually teach that recognising false leaders and teachers in the church, and then how do we contend for the faith against these false teachers and leaders in the church? And it's interesting, Jude draws out of the Old Testament three characters that we've heard of to illustrate the nature and the character of those who've crept in unnoticed. He talks about Cain, he talks about Balaam, and he talks about Korah. Three Old Testament characters who, in a lot of ways, brought destruction upon themselves and upon God's people. And we're not going to look at the three of them this morning. I just want to take one of them, those uh, characters, Cain. And it talks about the way of Cain and the error of Balaam and the rebellion of Korah. And so there are a lot of things that we could uh, delve into to understand about the character But I just want to highlight the way of Cain because I think it has a special reality in the world and in the church today. We find that story in Genesis 4, 1 to 8, and we we probably know the story. Cain and Abel come to bring their offering to God. And Cain is someone who works with the ground. He tills the ground, he plants the crops, he grows fruit. I love fruit. Good on your cane for growing all sorts of fruit. And Abel is somebody who works 
with the flocks. And so on the, the day when they come before God, some scholars believe there was an accepted time when they would come. Maybe it was once a week or once a month. And so they came and they presented their offerings to God. And so Cain comes and he brings the fruit and the, the vegetables and all of the things and he places it on the altar. And Abel has slain an innocent lamb and he places that lamb on the altar. And God looks at the offering of both of these men and he says to Abel, I accept your offering. But to Cain, he says, I don't accept your offering. Now, can you imagine how Cain would have felt? I mean, you've been sweating blood all week. You've been out there with the crops and Glenis and I have just moved into a new home at Thornlands and I've discovered that I haven't got a talent for growing plants. And I was just talking to Erin this morning about, she said, she hasn't got a green thumb. And I said, well, I have. I've got a gangrene thumb. I can kill anything that's in the ground. That's why I love succulents. Who loves succulents here? Anybody? Oh, good on you. You can put them in the ground. And, and I always pray a little prayer of dedication. I say, if you live, you live. If you die, you die. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. Oh, that's good. And if the rains come from heaven and they live, that's wonderful. If it doesn't and they die, well, you rip them out and you put something else in. And so these two men brought their offerings and Cain must have thought, well, look, I've been working so hard. I've planted these seeds and I've grown the fruit and the vegetables and this is the best that I've got, God, and I give it to you. And God says, not accepted. But he looks across at Abel and he says, your offering is accepted. And we see a comparison here of God's way and man's way. God's way, where there's a sacrifice and blood is shed. And Abel respected that. And man's way, that seeks to come on the basis of their own effort and works. And we read in Hebrews 11.4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained witness that he was righteous God testifying of his gifts now Jewish tradition says that when a, an offering a sacrifice of a lamb was placed on the altar that God would testify that that was acceptable by fire from heaven that would burn up the offering now whether that is true or not we do have examples of that in the Old Testament whether that was how God testified here in this case or not, we don't really know. He could have. But we know he did testify in some way by saying this is acceptable and this is not. So what was the way of Cain? It was an attempt to gain God's approval and acceptance through good works without the shedding of the blood of a sacrifice. And yet we know Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so God had established a way of approaching him, gaining his approval and acceptance. And it was through the shedding of the blood of an innocent lamb. And so as we go through the Old Testament, we find the sacrificial system set up, all leading to that one day when Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, was crucified on the cross. 
And all of those Old Testament examples point through to one reality, and that is Jesus. So Cain brought his offering on the basis of salvation by good works rather than God's work. He didn't accept the truth that we're saved for good works, but not by good works. So what was Cain really doing? Obviously, God had set a bit of a pattern there. In fact, it's interesting that God killed the first animal to provide clothes for Adam uh, Adam and Eve to cover up their nakedness. So God shed the first amount of blood. And it's amazing when we think about Cain, he, he wasn't prepared to go God's way. He wanted to go his own way, the way of Cain. And he didn't want to shed the blood of an animal And yet because he didn't do that and he got angry when God didn't accept his offering, he shed the blood of his brother. He killed his innocent brother. And God said, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What was Cain really doing? He was seeking to create an alternative way to God. He was seeking to create a different gospel. And I think most of us have heard, you hear it on TV, you hear people say, there are many ways to the top of the mountain. There are many ways to God. There's Hinduism and Buddhism and New Age and there's Christianity and there's this and that and the other. There are many ways, but that's not what the scripture says. The Apostle Paul faced this issue of people creating their own gospel, twisting the truth. Way back in the early church, in Galatians 1, 6-12, Paul says this, I am astonished. I am astonished that you are so quickly turning to a different gospel. There are some who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel... Contrary to the one that we've already preached to you, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I seeking the approval of man or God? I saw an interview with a person and they were asked this question. A number of different people were interviewed and and the interviewer said, Do you think that you're going to make it into heaven? And this one person said, well, yeah, I, I think that I'll make it into heaven. I, I'm, I think I'm a good person. I, I've never done anything really bad in life. Yeah, look, I might have told a little white lie here and there, and you know, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person. I haven't killed anybody or robbed any banks or, you know, I might have got a speeding fine occasionally or something. But, and so the whole basis of acceptance or not was on what they had done. There's none of us here today who are good enough to offer anything to gain salvation. But the good news is that none of us are so bad that we're excluded from it because it's a free gift. And God says, I don't care how good or bad you are. If you are a human being, you're in need of salvation. And the only way is this way. Not Cain's way, not good works or any other thing that we can conjure up. 
And it's almost like the world tries to make us feel guilty. And I remember seeing a program where Oprah was interviewing uh, some folk, and some were Christians in the group, and she said something like, surely you're not saying that Jesus is the only way. Come on, be realistic, there must be other ways. And this one Christian lady up the back stood up and good on her said, no, no, Jesus is it. That's the way that God has designated. It's, and we've all heard the old saying, you know, it's my way or the highway. Well, in this case, it's God's way or it's no way. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and life. And in a lot of ways, Christianity is, is the most inclusive and yet the most exclusive system that exists. It's the most inclusive because it says, whosoever will may come. Anybody, male, female, young and old, black and white, uh, educated, uneducated, short and tall, smart or not so smart. You name all of the categories that we put people into in the world and God says, whosoever may come. It is not God's will that anyone should perish. That is fairly inclusive, I think. <laughs> Do you think? And yet it's the most exclusive who may come is very inclusive of everybody. How we come is very exclusive. God says it's this one way. John 14, 6, Jesus said, No one comes to the Father except... And that let's dwell on that word except for a moment. That means nothing else is allowed except through me. So it's through Jesus or it's not at all. And that's fairly exclusive, fairly intolerant. So the way of Cain is man's way to try and make peace with God. And it cannot be done. God says it cannot be done. It's not acceptable. God looks at the very best that Cain brings and the very best that you and I can bring. And he says, I'm sorry, that is not acceptable. Maybe he doesn't say, I'm sorry. But he says, that's not acceptable. <laughs> it doesn't matter how good it looks to us. It's not acceptable as a basis of salvation. Yes, we want to see good works and fruit, but that's the result or the effect at the end. We're saved by grace, through faith, unto good works. We're not saved by the good works. So how do we respond to teaching that we might see on the TV or here in the church that's a different gospel? Well, Jude chapter 3 says this. I was fully intending to write to you about our amazing salvation. We all participate in, but felt the need instead, as prompted by the Spirit, to challenge you to vigorously defend and contend for the beliefs that we cherish. And I think the world has bluffed the church and said you haven't got a right to stand up and be so dogmatic and intolerant about certain things. And yet God says in his word, we must defend the faith that's been given to us. Why contend for the truth? 
You know, in an age that says, well, it's truth for you, but it's not truth for me. Postmodern worldview. There's no such thing as absolute truth. And I said to someone, well, does that include the statement that there's no such thing as absolute truth? It's a circular argument. There is absolute truth. The person who stands on the roof and says there's no such thing as gravity and steps off realises very soon as they hit the ground that there is gravity. We can deny the truth as much as we like, but the truth will hit us in the face. Why contend for the truth? Romans 1.25 talks about those who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they've worshipped the creation rather than the creator. The world has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And how many people are going to a godless eternity because they've embraced the lie rather than the truth and they've got indignant and says, you know, this can't be a God of love. If, if he was really a God of love, he wouldn't allow the evil in the world. And God has given us a very simple answer for it. We just don't want to accept the answer. I'm responsible for the evil in the world, and so are you. The people of the world, creation, we have made decisions to hurt people, to rob banks, to do all the things that we might want to do. There's evil in the world because of us, not because of God. And God has provided a solution to the problem in Jesus Christ dying on the cross. If we accept the solution, many say no. That's not the way. And I had a, a good friend in Newcastle. I used to play soccer with him and we were part of the youth group. And uh, he at one point actually was the leader of the youth group. And after I'd come to Queensland and uh, been up here a bit, and I went back to Newcastle for a holiday, and I remember him saying, there is an answer in life, but it's not God. And so we, we can absorb all sorts of things and say, well, there's no answers to the, the, the problem of evil in the world, why it's there, or all the other issues that maybe are beyond fully understanding other than what God reveals in his word and so we turn away from God we, we, we bring an offering of something there's got to be something else I can put on the altar that God will accept well there's not and we're lying if we, we think there is we've exchanged truth for a lie well how do we contend well I want to mention two things that help us to defend the faith and to contend for the faith in the world. Why do we contend for it? Because speaking the truth helps people to come into freedom. Speaking lies does not. We need to immerse, firstly, we need to immerse ourselves in God's word in order to know the truth. To know the truth. John 8, 31 to 32. Jesus said, if you abide... In my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We talked about sanitizers the other day, last week, I think. What about vaccines? Why do we have vaccines? We have a vaccine, we have an injection to protect us from some virus. Do you know that the only vaccine against a lie is truth? 
people who work in the bank. Someone told me this years ago, I, I assumed it was true because they worked in the bank. And they said, they teach us to work with real money, not fake money. Because when we work with the real money all the time, when a, a counterfeit bill comes across our desk, we know it straight away. So we don't have to go and work with the lies and the untruth that's there. But if we know the truth, when something's spoken or promoted that's not truth, we will know. It won't have what J.B. Phillips calls the ring of truth. It, it, it just sounds truth. Intuitively, we know that something is the case. And we always take personal responsibility, so we should, for confirming the things. Even the great apostle Paul preach, uh, preached to the Berean church. And in Acts 17, 11, after Paul had preached, and, and you thought it might have been tough sitting there listening to me for a while. Well, Paul preached so long that some poor young guy fell out a window and died and he had to go down and resurrect him. In Acts 17, 11, Paul had preached to the Bereans and it says this, they received the word with all readiness. And then they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether those things were so. So Paul preached, the great apostle, and they said, well, that's good, Paul. We really appreciate what you've said. We're just going to go home now and we're going to examine everything you've said and we'll make our own decision on whether we think it's true to the word. If that has to be done with the great apostle Paul, how much more? You know, the things that we hear uh, on TV, the things that we hear from the pulpit or that we hear people talking about in church. We must be discerning Christians. We must grow up to the point where we know the word of God so well that when something that is not the word of God comes forth, we're able to stand against it to contend for the faith. So that's the first thing. Immerse ourselves in the word of God and know truth. Number two, we need to start proclaiming the truth. We need as the church, we need to shine as a light. A light as bright as it could be is not hidden away. It's supposed to be put on a hill. We're supposed to be proclaiming the truth. <clears throat> And yet often, the church, we're scared to speak. We're scared to offend anybody or we're scared that the world might say, you're wrong. What's the goal? Well, the goal is to restore those who've wandered from the truth and protect the church. James 5, 19 to 20. <clears throat> Pardon me. As members of God's beloved family, we must go after the one who wanders from the truth and bring him back. Bring him back. For the one who restores the sinning believer back to God gives back to his soul life from the dead and covers over countless sins by their demonstration of love. To confront somebody about something that's not true is a demonstration of love. You see somebody about to drink a cup of poison, you know it's poison, but they don't. Is it the loving thing to stand back and say, look, I don't want to interfere in their life. Look, they make their choices, we respect your choice. If you want to drink a cup of poison, you go for it. No, that's not the loving thing to do. The loving thing to do is to go up and say, that thing is dangerous. That thing will kill you, it's poisonous, it's toxic. 
And A.W. Tozer said, the world doesn't need Christians to walk beside all of these people on their way to hell and just say, look, you know, we respect your views. Yeah, look, that's cool. It needs somebody to stand across the pathway and say, you're going the wrong way. You need to hear the truth to be free, to have eternal life. I don't know about you, but I've heard people say, oh, don't judge me. They say, well, look, this particular lifestyle is not what God would want. It's not the best that God would want. Oh, don't judge me. Well, that's not true. And say, so you, you Christians, you're not supposed to judge. The Bible says don't judge. That's not true. We should not judge or condemn the person, but we are called to judge the words, the lifestyle, the actions according to God's standard of approval. John 7, 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge by a right judgment. We judge all the time. And we need to judge, discern, weigh up, the things that are there. I'm not talking about condemning people. We're not here to condemn people for anything. There go I except for the grace of God. But we certainly are called to judge words and actions and lifestyles as to whether they line up with the word of God. 1 Corinthians 2.15 The person with the Holy Spirit makes judgments about what? About all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. We have to judge and discern and weigh up the things that we hear, the things that we find acceptable in the church. And society encourages an absolute tolerance, accept anything because we might offend somebody or hurt their feelings. Did you know that God is not tolerant of everything people say and do? Revelation 2.20 he says this to the church, I have this against you, is a rebuke coming here, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. And so Jezebel was in the church. Some believe that she was the pastor's wife. No offence there, darling. Nobody really knows. Some think she had some authority in the church and she was promoting sexual immorality in the church and saying, that's okay. It's okay to have this lifestyle. And God says here, I have this against you that you tolerate that. God rebukes us if we tolerate certain things that are ungodly. <clears throat> A church I pastored a number of years ago in Newcastle. One of the men in the church committed adultery on his wife. And I was brought into the situation. And I, so I talked with the guy and, as was my responsibility, encouraged that person to think about what they were doing, that it was against God's law not even to mention the devastation to his wife and the kids. But he wouldn't accept what I was seeking to do. And so after a period of time, I had to get up in front of the church and say, I have taken this person off membership in the church. 
they're no longer in fellowship with this church because they've committed adultery on their wife. That was hard to do, I can tell you. Because at every moment I was examining my own heart saying, I'm not here to condemn. I'm not here to put people down. But I am here to seek to restore somebody back to God, but also to protect the church. Do we want to protect our kids? In one church I was in, a man turned up at the church and after a week or two he said, I want to work in the children's ministry. And something within my spirit felt very, very uncomfortable. And I said, well... You need to attend the church for, say, six months, get to know people, we can get to know you, and then we'll see if, there's, if that's a ministry you can exercise in the church. We never saw him after that. And I said to the, the elders, I had a deep feeling within me that this person was not going to be good for our children. We're here to protect the church, to restore people to relationship with God. Matthew 18, 15 to 18 says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take two or three others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as if they're a pagan or a Gentile. These are not easy things. I personally can say to you, it is gut-wrenching, personally sleepless nights, examining my own heart to make sure, God, let my heart be right with you if I have to do this thing. But for the sake of the church. And we're moving into a time where darkness is seeking to invade the church. And we have to stand up. And we have to proclaim truth, contending for the truth, both for the restoration of those who are lost in darkness, but also to protect the church. It's not about offending people or hurting people's feelings. I've had people say to me, you can't say that about this sexually immoral lifestyle that someone's adopted because you hurt their feelings. They don't feel good about themselves. And I said, well, what's a worse thing? To have someone's feelings hurt and then maybe be restored to the church or to let somebody feel nice and comfortable all the way to hell? Nathan the prophet went to David and he said, David, I want to tell you a story. There was a guy that had lots of sheep and there's another guy and he just had one little lamb. And the guy that had lots of sheep took the little lamb and made it his own. What do you think should be done with this person? And David said, well, he should be put to death. And then Nathan said, you're the guy. What you've done is wrong. You need to be restored. And yes, we take a chance. We take a chance of being rejected, of offending people. But when I read the Gospels... I find that Jesus offended more people 
than you can imagine. (laughs) Not for the purpose of offending, but for the purpose of restoring them. Just to draw this to a close now. There are dangerous hidden reefs in the church that seek to shipwreck lives. Not specifically talking about this church, but I'm talking about the church generally. We need to rise up to be a vocal minority in the world. We need to let the light shine. As Ephesians 4.15 says, let us speak the truth in love and then we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Let's pray. Loving Father, it's uh, fairly heavy. (laughs) Your word challenges us, it confronts us. But Father God, we, we want to choose your way, not the way of Cain. We want to choose to walk with you in a way that you approve and, and you accept. And I pray for each and every one of us in the variety of situations that we find ourselves in, that we might be those who will speak the truth in love because we love people enough to take a chance to be rejected by them and to hurt their feelings because we want to see them become part of God's kingdom, to come back to the truth. Father, we pray that you would reveal within the church the hidden dangers of these reefs that we might protect those in the church who are new in the faith, who are seeking to follow you. And Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, each and every one of us would seek to assess and proclaim the truth that you've given. In the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.